Father, we uh, would help, or we would ask for your help in our ability to speak and the words that are in our minds that just churn around and they fall into some organized speech pattern. May those patterns be wholesome. May they be patterns that are helpful. May they be patterns that speak of you and your kingdom and not of the ways of the world and not the vitriol and the harsh criticism and just the blasphemy which is out there. We know that, Father, if we have control of our tongues, we are perfect and we are imperfect and not until we see you will that perfection be made complete. So, Lord, as we get into your word here and we see the remaining commandments that you have for us, we pray that we could easily make them our own and repent easily when we don't. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this idea of libel, libel is the same as slander, except libel is put down in a written form. Could we have the exterior lights turned on? over there please and so there are several celebrities which are out there who have had libel suits against newspapers and magazines for what they have written actress Cameron Diaz had a lawsuit a libel lawsuit against the Sun the UK newspaper for falsely reporting that she was having an affair with a married man and she was awarded damages in 2005 Star Magazine in 2011, she had a, a, Katie Holmes filed a libel lawsuit against them because they reported that she had a drug addiction, which she didn't. Kate Hudson in 2005, she had a lawsuit against the National Enquirer because they reported she had an eating disorder and she did not. And the most famous one in recent history is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Amber Heard, she wrote an article in the Washington Post which was libel against Johnny Depp. And of course, he was awarded millions of dollars, but she says she can't pay. And so there is this slanderous accusation that can be put down in a written form. And when that's done, if you are a celebrity, it's very difficult to win a lawsuit. But if you're a private individual, it is much easier to do so. And this is one thing that we know that we're not supposed to be engaged in. Is libel, writing something down that speaks against another person with vitriol and harsh criticism, especially if it is not true. And that brings me to gossip. Gossip is something that we can be engaged in. And I can remember being in high school where gossip was just rampant. And it was so wonderful because we had talked to each other about other people and what they were doing and how they were acting. And no, really? Tell me more. It would be the attitude of many people uh, in the high school years. And sometimes there are individuals who never outgrow that. And gossip is saying something that may or may not be true. It may be true, it may be false, but there is always a bad intent in the heart of communicating it to somebody else because you don't like the person, you don't like what they did, you just have a beef against them, whatever the case might be. And so that's gossip. Proverbs talks about gossip being like a tasty morsel. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind when I 
say the words tasty morsel is Turkish delight in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and how it would go down so smoothly and tasty and sweet. And you have something that's like that. Maybe it's teriyaki chicken or beef or pork and it goes into your mouth and you just start salivating if you like that kind of thing. Or maybe it's cookies and cream or just chocolate chip cookies. You take it in, oh, and it's so good. You dip that in milk and you you put it down. That's what gossip is like. Only it goes down into the soul and the soul goes, oh, this is so good. This is so wonderful. Gossip, we're not supposed to be involved in engaging in gossip, talking about other people whether it's true or false that paints them in a bad light and the intent in your heart is to make sure others know what is going on then there are grumblers and fault finders grumblers is also described in scripture as a murmurer and a fault finder is somebody who is always complaining and blaming in jude Verse 16, it talks about the false teachers, that they are grumblers and fault finders. Always finding something to complain about. Always just half under the breath, just going on, just upset all the time. And you've heard me probably say this before. Remember the old Popeye cartoons? He would walk around and go, and he'd pull out his pipe and Bluto would be there because these are the black and white ones. Then he was always murmuring underneath his breath. He was always upset about something. And except when he saw olive oil, then he just perked up a little bit. But the rest of the time, he was just murmuring all the time. Now, there is something else in a, a legal document that it tries to prevent people from saying anything bad or reproachful about a person or a company, and it's called a legally binding non-disparagement agreement. And if you sign one of those, you cannot say anything at any time that is disparaging, that is slanderous, that is bad in any way towards an individual or towards a company. And they have these documents. They have other documents like this. I've I've been to some very wealthy people's homes and I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement before I even got into the rest of the house and the person that made me sign it they were an, an actual maid you know they had the the whole get up and then like a butler is there and all that stuff and I walked in and you may not talk about anything that you see in this house at any time inside or out and if you do we will kill you you know basically what it says and so there are attempts to get people to stop divulging information and especially in this context to try to get people to stop saying bad things about anybody at any time. Now, the Lord has given us his Holy Spirit on the inside, and that is our legally binding non-disparagement agreement. He is the one that says, don't disparage anybody. Don't talk evil about anybody. Don't gossip about anybody. Don't slander anybody. And that brings us to the next subject here. Slander is to make false and malicious statements about somebody. And this is verbal. The same thing with libel, only libel is written down. But slander is something that is verbal. Now, we know Scripture says in Philippians 2.14, we're not supposed to complain about anything. And that is literally anything we're not allowed to complain about. But we love to complain. 
We love to talk about what is wrong and we need to set things right. And the term, again, slander refers to false statements made by one party against another. Slander is communicated verbally with the intent to defame in order to cause humiliation or disgrace or malign somebody. That is what slander is. And it's one of the sins of the tongue. In Second Corinthians, there's a whole list in chapter 12 and verse 20. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he says, For I'm afraid when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And I'm sure he knew that that was going on in the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was a mess. Just a total mess of everything that they were involved with and the practices that they had there. And Paul was trying to be gracious, but at the same time, he's going, knock it off. Stop doing this. And all of these things that are listed in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, usually come out. The one jealousy may not come out this way, but it comes out with the tongue. The tongue expresses like outbursts of anger. Have you ever seen somebody have an outburst of anger? They just go ballistic. They go nuts. Factions. Factions are people inside the church. Well, I don't know. I, I I like cookies instead of donuts. Or I like fruit and vegetables instead of the donuts. And the factions, you have the donuts and the non-donuts. And you, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to get too specific on that. But there are things you like and things you don't like. You like it cold and you like it hot. And this side is the warm side and this side is the cold side, obviously, because you guys like to be warm. Or, you know, whatever the case might be, we find things to create factions over who we like and who we approve of and who we don't. When an individual slanders someone else, they are passing judgment upon them. They have declared or decided that they have done something wrong, this other person, and either they have acted inappropriately or they have said something that is incorrect or outright false, and as a result, uh, as a result something is said in a derogatory fashion in order to correct the record and to do them harm. So if somebody does something you don't like, You want to speak against that. And you want to say, well, they're just a gossip and they're a slanderer and this is what I'm going to tell you about them and what they have done. And so we like to take back ground that has been seceded and somebody else has taken. And you might say to yourself or I might say to myself, I am not going to let them get away with that. And it's payback time. And you know, the Lord says, do not repay evil for evil. It could also be that someone just has a dislike for another individual and chooses to slander them for no good reason. Again, in high school, I don't like them. Why? I don't know. I think there's a country song about that. I don't like them, but I don't know why. But give me a minute and I'll think of a reason why I don't like them. And, and we have that with human beings because we're sinful. We have likes, we have dislikes, and there are people we like and people we don't like. Now, slander is always directed to others rather than to its object. If you don't like somebody, you never go to them, if you're slandering, and say, well, you know, I don't like you and what you did, and this caused me harm, and it made a problem for me over in this area. And We don't do that. If we slander somebody, and all of us at one time or another have slandered someone, we go to someone else, and we tell them what we think. It, it can be malicious insults about the individual. Again, you want to malign them. 
And we're not supposed to engage in that. We're supposed to keep our mouths shut when it comes to anything that is unwholesome. Ephesians 4.29. If you don't know it by now, you could look it up. And so we want wholesome talk coming out of our mouths. Now, the Jews were warned about this type of practice where they deliver just critical insults to somebody because they disagree with what they have done, some action they've taken, and Jesus is condemning them for it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without, or excuse me, angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Some of the Greek versions, they have angry with his brother without a cause. It depends on which version you go to. It says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so these are all curses that people are bringing to other individuals, specifically the Jews, the Sanhedrins, the Levites, uh, and, and the Pharisees. They would do this. They would just get down on somebody and they would say things that were just horrible about these individuals and they would walk away and Jesus says you better not do this because if you do this you're going to be in danger of hellfire and judgment if you just let your anger fly and we know that scripture says the fool gives full vent to his anger and somebody who does that you can immediately in your heart label them as a fool you wouldn't want to turn to the person next to you and go, that person's a fool. Like, because what is that? It's kind of like, yeah, everybody knows that they're a fool, but you're just continuing it. And then that person will go tell somebody else when they get home, maybe it was a sporting event. And you know, there was this fool there and you're just talking about these foolish people. You don't have to describe who a fool is. A fool is evident to everyone who is out there by the way they conduct themselves. The things that they say, you don't need to repeat it. It is obvious. So, in the context that is being delivered here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, where they're angry with, with somebody, or they say, Raka, or you fool, and it's a curse to, to say Raka. In the context, it's the people that do that are thinking that they are superior, that they are better than the one that they are criticizing. They become maybe angry over the incompetence of others thinking that they are more competent. They mean to belittle and berate. Now this can often happen inside a family unit where the the father maybe berates the children or the mother berates the children. The father might say something like, you'll never amount to anything. Or they, they say, well, just be a man or you know what are you doing as a girl you're not acting appropriately but they use language that is just demeaning and putting them down and Jesus would tell us no we're not supposed to be doing that but what about this idea of rebuking there's a fine line between rebuking and berating the person who rebukes intends it for the individual's good the person who berates wants to destroy the individual. And so there is this idea of correction. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the enemy, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. And that's the King James. The NIV says, Wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And of course we know that flattery 
is a sin. And so somebody who comes along and brings correction to you, an admonishment or even a rebuke, if they love you, they're going to tell you what is going on and what is wrong and how you need to correct things. And they may even raise their voice a little bit. And they may start pointing at you a little bit. And when that happens, well, the idea is you have in mind to correct an error to set the person right. The berating is you don't want to set them right. You just want to tell them how wrong they are. And so there's that fine line. You have to check the motivations in your heart. So getting back to this, we have libel, we have gossip, we have a grumbler or fault finder, a murmurer, a mutterer, and then specifically slander is listed here in James chapter 4, verse 11. And that's our text here this morning. It says, Brothers, do not slander one another. Now, why did he have to say this? Because they're slandering each other. It's obvious from the text. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? So he says in the context of slander, if you do that, you have passed a judgment on that individual and you may not have all the information. And God says, do not do it. And so this judgment, it says, when speaking evil of someone, you place them under your scrutiny and judgment, which is reserved solely for the lawgiver, which is God himself. We are not to pass judgment on individuals like that. And when we slander, we do. We tell God to move over. I have something to say about this individual, and it is not good. Just turn on the news. You turn on the news, and you will, I promise you, you're going to see slander on both sides of the aisle. They come out, oh, they're just terrible. You know, um, Ron DeSantis. I like Ron DeSantis. The guy is a Boy Scout. I mean, literally, he's a Boy Scout. And he was in JAG in the military, and he went to Yale and Sigma Cum Laude, and I think he went to Harvard as well. And he's doing, I think, a a pretty good job down in Florida. And there were some people on The View that came out and called him a Nazi. It's like, well, how do you say something like that about this guy who seems to be doing a lot of good, and it has to do with having a biblical worldview. If you don't have a biblical worldview, anybody who does good, you're going to want to slander. So just watch The View, watch MSNBC, even watch Fox, and you will see that they come out and they will slander other people. And God says, as believers, we're supposed to avoid that. We're not supposed to get involved in that. He goes on in verse 13. Now listen... You who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city, to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil." Now, we make plans, and I think it's good to make plans to forecast what you would like to do. You can even make lists of what you would like to accomplish. But this idea of you're leaving out God, say, I am going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this, and I'm going to get that degree. I'm going to rise through the ranks of this company. One day I will be CEO of this company. You make all these plans in your head 
but you never talk about God or reference him like maybe he has a plan on this I was thinking about this the other day in my particular line of work I'm a gardener that's what I do I garden and I used to hate it with a passion my father did some of this he used to be a newspaper man and he ended up going into gardening and maintenance and you know doing some contracting and stuff and and I just hated it pull that bank of weeds that is 10,000 square feet every single weed has to come off of there Oh, I, I, I would just loathe it. The sun beating and having to drink water and, oh, it's up and down the hill and make it, oh, it's just sweaty and miserable. And, and then God changed my heart and I would go out there and go, I love pulling weeds. Oh, look at this one. Oh, this daughter that's not going to make it over here. The lamb's quarter, that's coming out and the spotted spurge. Die, you spotted. And you, Get that attitude. And it's because God changed my heart. He wanted me to go in that direction. He wanted me to be involved in construction on the outside. And, and I was heading in another direction. And I never thought to say, well, if it's the Lord's will. I was going to be a civil engineer and a pilot before that. And God said, no, you're going to garden. You're going to stick your fingers in the soil and you're going to love it. And uh, I do. I love it. And God has a way of directing where we're supposed to go. Anything that we're doing, as far as a vocation is concerned, do you think God had a hand in that? Getting you there with your desires that you had? He has led us. Now, if you hate your job, and you are just so dissatisfied, and you wake up in the morning, and you start slandering your boss, and you even put down little notes how you hate that, and you hide them around the office, or whatever you might do, maybe God's moving you out somewhere, maybe in another direction to do something else. But we should not boast about what we're going to accomplish. God wants us to do something. He has a plan for every one of us. And we just need to say, well, I think this is God's will, and I'm going to go in this direction. He has given me the desire in my heart, and I'm going forward. But we should not be exercising this arrogance that is on the inside. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to take God into consideration. Now, previously in the book of James, we have this idea, what causes fights and quarrels among you, the quarreling that goes on with those that James is writing to, how it is good to resist the devil, how it is good not to slander, how it is good to judge correctly and not judge incorrectly, and it is not good to be boastful. Then James goes on to write, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So if we know that we're supposed to give credit to God for anything that we do and we don't do it, well, that is sin. If we get involved in slandering somebody and we know we shouldn't do it, well, that becomes sin. If we know we're not supposed to quarrel and yet we like getting into a good argument, a good fight, God says, no, that is sin. Well, what about just in general doing good? What is good and what is not good? We know that scripture tells us what good is. We all have opportunities that present themselves that God has foreordained for us to be involved in. He places things in our paths that we're supposed to do, things we're supposed to accomplish. And it can be that he's directed you in a particular job to be a witness at that job to those people who you talk to. I get to do this on a semi-regular basis. 
Once, a, once five times a month, I'm talking to somebody about just stuff, about a biblical worldview, about the politics and the morality of the politics, or about Jesus Christ and salvation. I get these opportunities, and I, I, I relish them. I enjoy those conversations that I have with people, and I, I try to gently lead them. Most of the people that I talk to, they're not believers, and, and I try to gently lead them into the biblical worldview, and I believe God has called me to do that. I believe he's given me the information in the Bible that is necessary to talk to particular individuals at particular times and explain to them what's going on. But there are some who are just so stubborn, they will not change their opinion, no matter what you tell them. But God says, be a witness anyhow. Let them know what's going on anyhow. And let them know through a mild admonishment that I think what you're doing is not quite correct or it's not beneficial. And God calls us in these particular opportunities. And he calls us to open our mouths. Not just do things with our hands, but open our mouths. Now, for us as a church, we have had plenty of opportunities to do things with our hands. I started recalling some of the things that we have done as a church. One of the last things that we did, we went to Houston and we worked on some houses flooding. We refurbished and hung drywall in somebody's house that had a flood. And they were believers. We were doing a job for a group of believers. We went to Bay St. Louis where there were a bunch of non-believers. And we made several trips going there and we worked in the tent cafeteria that was there and we went out and we helped people and fix their homes and did mucking. Same thing with New Jersey, Hurricane Sandy that was there. We've been down to Mexico and we built some houses for people down in Mexico, whether in an orphanage or building the 12 by 14 sheds that are there that they turn into houses. We've been to Cambodia and Africa and Vietnam. We take care, um, we help take care of the pregnancy center. Uh, we send people to or support people in Croatia and San Catin and orphanages in Mexico. We have other building projects like we went up to Paradise, California when they had the big fire up there. And then COVID hit and we haven't done anything for a while. We haven't gone out in a while. And normally I get a call from somebody and they will let us know, hey, there's this opportunity and I bring the opportunity to you and we go do it as a church. But like I said, COVID kind of put a stop to that. And I'm, I'm waiting to see how the Lord provides for us the opportunities. And then when we go, it's our job to witness to the people if they're unbelievers. I can remember doing a, a couple of jobs with all of you and had a chance to talk to the owners of the houses. And, and some of the, the needs are really just overwhelming um, and I'll get into that in a minute, but it's this idea that we have these opportunities that present themselves and it's always going to involve some type of sacrifice in order to fulfill them. It's always going to cost you something when you go out and you help people. Now, we don't, the reason we don't sacrifice is we don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to get sick or injured. Let me tell you, if, if you ever have the opportunity to go uh, on a trip, whether to Vietnam or Cambodia or Africa, you can bet almost 99.95% you're going to get sick. And I can remember one trip. I had a buddy. His name was Sean. And we're in this little hotel room. And both of us got the ick. And I just hoped that he wasn't in the bathroom when I needed to use the bathroom. And it was just back and forth for two days. 
It was like that. It was just miserable, absolutely miserable. And I thanked the Lord for Cipro and for Ivermectin and taking those. You know, some people have malaria and they they take the Ivermectin for that. And it's being inconvenienced. And it never happens at a convenient time. And you want a nice facility to go to when you start to feel like that. And the most you have is a hole in the ground. And and it's like, you want to go on a trip like that? And the mosquitoes and the nets and there's no shower and you got to pour water over your head and you got to wash. And, and it's cold out there in the morning and you have cold water to wash with. And people go, whoo, when they pour the water over their head. And it, it, it's just like that. And if, if you have a regular bathroom, go, a bathroom. If you have something like that or a shower, but don't put the water in your mouth because you'll get sick if you put the water in your mouth. And you fill up the sink with water and it's brown. It, it's not, you know, clear like it is here. And there's all these inconveniences or your flight gets delayed or there's, there's the turbulence in the jet. I, I think I told you one jet flight over Africa, we jumped or fell like a thousand feet in a second and the whole plane started screaming and and I looked at Drew he was up there and he's like yeah this is the way it is you know and you just deal with what's there it's inconvenient we don't like to be inconvenienced like that but it's all to get the gospel to open up your mouth even though you're helping them to one degree or another and it's difficult it is hard to do that So again, what keeps us from doing good? Well, it can be selfish ambition. I don't want to do that. Pride, lack of humility. Uh, It can be over a concern for personal comfort. And like I said, we almost always get sick at one point or another and everybody, uh, and it's rare that somebody doesn't, but that's just the way it is. And if we have the opportunities to do good and to support others who do good, we should prayerfully consider our personal involvement and then move forward as the Lord opens the door. If something is presented to you, walk through the door. Just do it. And people can be afraid to do that. Well, what about the unknown? There are always unknowns. There are things you're going to run across that you have no idea. But the blessings that come from that are just spectacular when you have done that. The only problem with going on a missions trip, you've heard me mention this, that you come back and you look at everybody else like, whoa, what are you doing? How come you're not involved? What, you little whip? Get, just pick up yourself by the bootstraps and get out there and do something. And that's the wrong attitude to have as well. And then you want to slander against them because they're just weaklings. And you see how it just works. So uh, going on here, we previously in James, we had some instruction delivered about treating the rich and poor differently, how you'd bring somebody in who was rich and you'd put them in the nice seats and the poor people, you'd have them sit down somewhere else. You paid special honor to those who are wealthy. And make no mistake, it is never wrong to possess wealth or to have lots of material possessions, but possessions and wealth must be fenced in by character and love. And like I said, it's previously mentioned in James, but he brings it up here again, that those people that have wealth, they have a responsibility with the wealth. And even in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, we're supposed to have some kind of wealth to transfer to our children. 
We're supposed to be able to give something to our children, if at all possible. And the rich have been given wealth in order to share with those who have needs, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. But the rich who hoard wealth and they spend it on a life of luxury while oppressing the poor and take advantage of them will eventually pay the ultimate price of a stern judgment from God. There are people who do that, that have wealth, and they will oppress the poor. They will not pay them like for work that has been done. Now, being a contractor, there have been times when I have gotten paid. If you own a business, there are times where people don't pay you or they do you harm and there's no way to collect from them. And, you know, I just look at it as, well, you're going to be paid back. I'm not going to have to pay you back this wrong for the wrong you have committed to me. God will take care of me and he'll take care of you. And that needs to be our attitude. But the rich, they hoard some rich, they hoard wealth to their own detriment. Like the laborer who doesn't get paid, who's supposed to be paid. I recently saw this video of a guy, I, I think it was some type of mining operation. And the bottom of the video gave a description of what was going on. And he was on a track hoe. Now, if you know what a track hoe is, it has tracks like a bulldozer. And it has a large, this was a large one. And it had a, a big cab on it. And it has a backhoe attachment is what it has. And it was a large one. It wasn't small. And this guy worked and his uncle didn't pay him. So what did he do? He took the track hoe and started collapsing all the cabs on all the trucks that were there at the mining operation. And you see it and you go, oh, and people are trying to run out, trying to stop him. And there goes another one, crash right through the cab of the truck. And he just keeps on going because he wasn't paid. Now, we're not supposed to do stuff like that. If we're wronged, okay, the Lord's going to pay you back, and I'm not going to have to worry about it, and he's going to take care of me. He takes care of the sparrows, and even though it's an inconvenience, I'm not supposed to worry about it. And so these rich people who will not pay for whatever reason, their employees, they are under a curse. They're going to be judged by that, or anybody who hoards wealth, and they do so to their own detriment when they have the ability to help somebody else, and they don't do it. God says, that's not good. And the verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Now listen, you rich people. Now, the way that this is written in English, Now listen, you rich people. He doesn't say, Now those who are wealthy, he goes, Now listen, you rich people. And it's like, perk up your ears, pay attention to what's going on, weep and wail because the misery that is coming upon you. Now this is a rebuke. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And so he's not being kind here to those people who are wealthy. Remember who he's writing to. The 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews who are hoarding their wealth. So there was a failure to help those who are in need when the rich had the ability to help. Now, this is difficult as a church. Like I've said before previously here in the message, we have been to places where the needs have been overwhelming and there is no way to meet the needs of everyone. And care must be employed because of the harm that it may cause rather than doing good in those situations. Large crowds may not be able to be helped to the fullest extent. Uh, having something but not having enough for the entire group can be extremely damaging. You know, in um, <clears throat> years and years ago, Patty and I, we went down to Mexico to the dump down there. 
And we had a pickup truck full of stuff. And a guy named Ricardo Richard was with us. And he spoke Spanish. And the people at the dump, they're looking for food. And I remember seeing a little child come up with a cucumber in their hand that they just pulled out of the trash. That they cut off the top and they were eating it as they came up to us. And this was in the dump. And as they came up, all of a sudden, the truck was surrounded I mean surrounded. It looked like there was 100 or 200 people around us. Men, women, and children all there. And we had stuff to give away that was in the back of the pickup. And, of course, Richard was able to direct the people, line them up, say, Hey, we only have so much. We're going to give you guys each a little bit. Fortunately, we had enough for everybody that was there. And we were able to handle that, hand it out. But, you know, you, you go to a place like Africa... And there can be 600 people underneath a banyan tree waiting to be treated. And you have kids, maybe 100 or more kids. And if you have little toys like the Alibaba, you know, you can buy a bag full of 100 little gizmo toys, little plastic things that are in there. And you can give them away. But if you don't have enough for everybody, you are going to cause a problem. Even when you give them something, they will fight between themselves of which one they want or they'll steal from each other. And it becomes a problem. You have to be very careful about what you're going to do for those who are there. And our time is limited whenever we go on these types of trips. And we can only service or help people, maybe three or 400, and there may be 600 there, and the rest don't get help. And you start handing out these cards for people, number cards, to get in line. And if some people don't get them, then they walk away dissatisfied. But everybody is in need. The need is overwhelming, and the need cannot ever be fully met going on some of these trips. But the whole purpose is to give the gospel. You give them some temporary treatment, and all treatment is always going to be temporary. You give them that temporary treatment, and you give them the gospel and hopefully they get saved because this is endemic poverty. It is generational poverty. It just continues from generation to generation and it never ceases. And we can never satisfy the needs of everyone who is there. But God opens the door and says, you know, you have an opportunity here to help some. We can never help any, everyone, but we can help some. And this is what God would tell us to do. And if we have some wealth that we can help them with that, or some missionaries who are out there. I remember talking to a guy named Trev, and he's over at Shadow Mountain, and they would hire, not hire, but they would have people inside the church who had certain skills to go into the deepest, darkest reaches of India or South America or Africa and reach out to a missionary who is there that has requested, can I have somebody build me some shelves or whatever the case might be? And you might have to hike for half a day to get to where they are, carrying your tools and whatever you need, this materials and supplies to help them. And there are people who do that and people can be supported in doing that. But again, the, the reason that we don't do this and the reason that rich people hoard is because of selfish desires where I got mine, go fend for yourself. And that is being communicated through those Jews who James is writing to here. And he gives an example. Verse 4 says, Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your field are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. So that's what the rich were doing back then. They would hire people and would not pay them. Leviticus 19.13, do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. This is the same as stealing. If you hire somebody, 
pay them what you agree to pay them. Now, on the flip side of that, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of day workers, and they'll come out and in the middle of the day, it's hard work, they'll say, oh, you know, this is really hard work. I think you need to pay me more. I won't comment about what I did in those cases, but you get the idea. That is also not good. That is also bearing false witness, saying you will pay or you will receive a particular amount of pay. And then you try to hold an employer over a barrel. You know, unions, they may be good in some cases. I don't know about overall, but that happens in unions all the time. You will pay us more or we're going to make you suffer. It's like, wow, that's a Christian value isn't it? No, it's really not. And I'm not going to take out the rich who take advantage of the employees who are there. There's always that problem, but there's the flip side as well. So verse five says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgent, referring to the rich. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Bless you. And verse six says, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. And in this particular case, the rich would take the poor into court and they would hold them hostage and they would receive money from them as a court judgment because they could pay off the judges whatever the case might be. And God is saying through James, you are condemned for this type of behavior. And so we know that uh, James comes out strongly. Verse two again says, your wealth has rotted, your moth has eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are eroded. And so for those who hoard their wealth, judgment is certain. But in the new heavens and new earth, I believe we're not going to have money. Everything that we think of that's down here, we're not going to have in the new heavens and new earth. He says, everything is going to be new. It's going to be something brand new. We're not going to have to exchange money. Now, Proverbs says that a laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on in chapter 16, verse 26. So what motivates you to work? I'm hungry. I need some money to buy some food to stay alive. In the new heavens and new earth, you don't have to eat. You don't have to drink. You're going to stay alive. So you have no motivation to go out and do a job. Although I think there's plenty we're going to do. The motivation is not going to be, I'll starve if I don't work. It's not going to be like that. And we're not going to need money. If God asks us to do something, I'm out, I'm doing it. No problem. You're going to be zealous to do it, whatever it is. And there's not going to be anybody who's poor anymore. Everybody is going to own everything. Jesus says, I'm going to give you my throne. You're going to rule and reign with me on my throne is what he tells us. And we're not going to lack for anything. And so the motivations are going to be completely different. And all the sin that was here, we're not going to remember it. Isaiah chapter 65 tells us that. It's not going to come to mind. It's just going to all pass away. It's completely new. Everything that we know about this earth, it's going to be completely new in heaven. And so we're not even going to have to worry about this. This is instruction for us here on this earth. And this instruction, we're not even going to have to remember in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's hard to to fathom. But there are warnings against wanting to get rich. Proverbs 23, 4 says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint, but uh, cast but a glance at riches. 
and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And wanting to get rich, it can affect your health. The sleep of the labor is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Now, I know as we get older, we have a tendency to sleep a little less, and you wake up and your brain is just going a mile a minute. And he goes, calm down, brain. And you, you want to just, I just want to sleep. And you're worried about everything that is going on. And the rich, they worried about their wealth. And going on here in verse 7, a couple of more uh, exhortations, encouragement. Verse 7 says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rain. And this would be for the person who's being persecuted by the rich. In context, don't worry about it, God is saying. Hey, just be patient. It says in verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brother, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Verse 10, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy above all, my brothers. Do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Now, this is kind of cryptic here. What do you mean swear an oath? Are we not allowed to swear oaths? Can can you go to court? I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. And you put your hand in the Bible. Are you allowed to do that as a Christian? Because it says here, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do you tell the judge, look, judge, I don't need the Bible. I'm just going to let my yes be yes and my no be no. And people who don't believe the Bible, if they put their hand in the Bible and say, I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, God. They don't believe in God. Can they lie? You know, it, it just doesn't matter anymore. But this idea, should you take an oath like that? I want to tell you up front, it's okay to do that. It's all right to take an oath on the Bible if you're in a courtroom and they make you take that oath. It's fine. There was a problem with the Jews. They were into taking oaths all the time. And these oaths that they were taking, they were actually a reason to lie is what they would do. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, Jesus condemns them. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. So a Jew would say, I swear by the temple, which means he could lie and break his oath. But if he had swore by, excuse me, if he swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if he swears by the gold in the temple, then you're bound to that. And so they would come up with these exceptions. And they would try to trick the person they were taking an oath with so that they could break their oath later because it had a different meaning to them. And God says, knock it off. Which is different, the temple or the gold in the temple? It's all holy. Stop swearing. Stop taking these oaths. And so when James is saying to these Jews, stop taking oaths like that, he's saying, stop lying. Stop bearing false witness. And then he has this section of prayer here. Verse 13 says, if any one of you is in trouble, what should he do? Pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Verse 14, is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, pray over them and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. 
the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And this is an act where you take oil and you pour it on the person's head. Uh, back in La Mason, when we were there, we had this guy, funny guy. But he anointed somebody with oil. He just poured the whole bottle on their head. You know, it's just, that's what they would do in the Old Testament. You know, they would just pour the whole kitten caboodle on it. That, that's a technical term. They, they would pour everything on their head and anoint them with oil. And, of course, there's medicinal uses for this type of oil that was used back then. You can go to Israel and you can buy some of the scented oil and it, it's just wonderful for anointing. But the prayer and faith, it's the prayer and faith that the people who pray for the individual have. It, it heals or will bring healing if it's according to God's word. Now, uh, how do we know that a prayer is effective? What, what can we do to know that our prayers are getting through? Well, contrition is good. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, If you will humble, yourself, humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And that was a promise made to the Jews. So contrition is good. Wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart, believing in faith. Mark eleven twenty four says, Therefore I tell you, whoever asks whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And of course, there's a little caveat there. Ask according to God's will, not to heap it upon yourself. And if you're obedient, if you keep his commands, according to 1 John three twenty two, God will answer your prayer. We have a promise of this. Now, God is not required to answer our prayers according to our will, but according to his. Verse 17 says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. There's so much I could go into here, but this idea of spending a whole week on just a couple of verses is difficult, and that's where personal study comes in. But what are we supposed to learn about James here? What we went over today, slandering, judging others, arrogance, doing good when the opportunity arises, handling wealth properly and not oppressing the poor, being patient when treated wrongly, and what makes for successful prayer. All of these things, he just has all of these bullet points in James. James is just a very practical, straightforward book, and it helps us in our walks. My prayer for you is that you guys understand James and that you're able to retain this information. That if you want to open your mouth and slander somebody, you grab those two lips and you staple them shut. That you won't do that. And then you take your thoughts captive and you throw them into prison. You destroy them when you just want to retaliate against somebody verbally or in writing. That is God's will for us. And by God's grace, we'll accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for James. It's such a good book. I would ask, Lord, that we could put all of these things into practice, that it would come to mind whenever we desire to sin or be bitter or want to slander or libel or get into altercations or quarrels. Lord, you know our flesh that we are weak but we would ask for your help that you would fill us with your spirit that we'd be able to walk in the spirit of love even though when we are being maligned and mistreated may we have your heart for those people who are involved in that and may you quickly of course you do Lord forgive us 
May we come to you quickly, I should say, and ask for your forgiveness when we fail in this. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. And the church said, please stand up as we sing our closing song.